0: Investment trusts come under scrutiny, how the pension needs of nannies will raise the bills for middle-class parents, and does a slowing Chinese economy have anything to offer UK investors? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm James Pickford and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of Judith Evans, Naomi Rovnik and special studio guest Sean McSweeney of Chase Devere. The financial engineers of Victorian Britain created investment trusts in 1868 as a new kind of collective funding vehicle. They have a venerable place in the annals of capitalism, but also a long record of being lambasted by critics for their unimaginative culture and lacklustre performance. Famously, it was Peter Hargreaves, the outspoken founder of Hargreaves Lansdowne, who five years ago declared the declining investment trust industry to be run by a lot of fuddy-duddies who had no place in an industry he thought incapable of being revived. If you've read the financial press in recent months, you might be forgiven for thinking little has changed after Alliance Trust, established 1888, was accused by the sharp-tongued US hedge fund, Elliott, of letting down its investors with poor governance. Elliott got its scalp as fund manager Catherine Garrett Cox stepped down as chief executive of the Dundee-based group. Though she remains head of the group's fund management arm, and the group agreed to make wide ranging changes to governance and investment policy. It was a chastening turn of events for one of the biggest and best known trusts in the sector. But is it fair to tar all investment trusts with the same brush? Are there reasons to think investors might still benefit from the special characteristics of this asset class? With me to discuss the outlook for them is Judith Evans from FT Money. Judith, We've heard lots about the upheavals at Alliance Trust. What's the latest there, and is it safe to go back in the water?
1: Well, they've unveiled these really quite drastic changes this month after the sort of prolonged wrangle with Elliot. Those include drawing some really firm lines between Alliance Trust, the trust, and the investment managers that it owns. Those investment managers will still be managing the trust, but in more of an arm's-length way, and for a very cheap fee of 35 basis points. It's going to focus purely on equity. It's going to have specific performance targets. And it's changed its board to a totally independent non-executive board, which is a move aimed at making it a less cosy sort of setup in which the board was perhaps a bit close to the management. So what analysts are telling me is that this is all good, as is a decision to be more active in buying back shares to try and reduce the discount to net asset value. And for that reason, a wealth manager, James Moulton at Rathbone, said you could do worse than buy Alliance Trust now because there is a fair likelihood that the discount will narrow and that the nature of this trust will change, hopefully, in a way that will improve performance.
0: So if Alliance Trust is looking a little bit better run... Are there others that remain potentially labelled as dinosaurs?
1: There are, I think it's fair to say. One trust in the private equity field, Electra, is under attack from Sherborne, another activist investor. But that's a more difficult battle in a sense. I think some of the onlookers have said, well, actually, it doesn't need such drastic changes. Um, Sherbourne are ploughing on nevertheless. They've got another general meeting with votes on some of their proposals on November the 5th, so that's one to watch. Another issue that quite a few people have raised that I've spoken to is trusts that are just a bit too small. It depends on the nature of the trust, but they've said that for a mainstream trust, if you're under £100 million, or particularly if you're under £50 million, you need to ask, is this really viable? And there are also potential issues with liquidity, the ease of getting in and out of the trust. Then there are some others. There's one, for example, the British Empire Securities and General Trust, another quite old trust, as you can tell from the name which has had pretty awful performance over the past five years. But what they've said is that's because we have what you call a value investing style looking out for what they think are undervalued companies. And they say markets just haven't favoured that lately. So they're saying, hang on for the long term and we'll get there. So that's one where, again, you have to make a decision. Is this a dinosaur that needs drastic changes? Or is it just a sort of, you know, the tortoise and the hare and the tortoise race, which will come good in the end? If we
0: stand back a bit and ask why do people invest in investment trusts, what what are the functions and are there different specialist trusts that are good for different types of investor or investors with different concerns?
1: Well, there are various different features to investment trusts. One is that they can borrow money, which means they can enhance returns. They can also enhance losses if it's not going very well. They can smooth over their dividends, which is one thing that's really popular with income investors, so they can hold back a bit of money in a good year, which means that they can pay out roughly the same amount each year, touch wood, which is great for people who need to live on that money and, and need something a bit more predictable then also, unlike open ended funds, regular funds, mutual funds, they can't draw in infinite amounts of money, and those other funds quite often get questioned in terms of isn't your incentive just to make this fund as big as possible? Never mind the performance. There's not the same question with investment trusts. Mm. Another interesting feature is that they can include assets that are illiquid, i.e. that are difficult to sell. Because when people move out of a fund like this, that doesn't mean they have to immediately sell a bunch of assets. So... Investment trusts have also become popular for asset classes like renewable energy assets, private equity, peer-to-peer debt, and a number of sort of more esoteric asset classes. They're not aimed quite so squarely at sort of you and me, the retail investor, but there's still some pretty interesting new funds springing up out there. And it's
0: not just a recent thing that investment trusts have come under scrutiny, and partly it's because of some new rules about commissions known as RDR. And why have these exposed investment trusts more than, say, other conventional funds?
1: Yeah, well, this was an interesting phenomenon. Other funds used to be able to pay commissions to financial advisors and other intermediaries such as wealth managers. And those guys always used to say, oh, gosh, that doesn't influence our choice at all. Investment trusts, though, have never paid those because they're structured differently. They're like a share. You just buy them on the market. So surprise, surprise, when those commissions were banned, a lot of advisors and wealth managers suddenly went, gosh, these investment trusts look terribly good, don't they? (laughs) And that's really raised their profile. That, in turn, though, has made it more difficult to get a bargain because the discounts between the share price and net asset value have narrowed. So you really have to hunt now to find a good deal.
0: Judith, thank you very much. There's more on the outlook for investment trusts uh, in this week's FT Money cover feature, which Judith has written. Still to come on the show, China's pace of growth slows, but are there still profitable avenues for UK investors in the country? First, thousands of people who employ nannies are likely to pay out hundreds of pounds a year more under a government scheme that forces them to help provide the professional carers with a pension. The auto-enrolment scheme is a big change in government policy designed to ensure that workers are automatically provided for in retirement, assuming they haven't already organised their own pension. Companies and employers are expected to put their workers into a pension automatically unless they deliberately opt out and put in contributions every year. The measures are designed to address a decline in pension provision, as we're not only all living longer, but company schemes are less generous than they were in the past, and we're drastically undersaving for retirement. Big companies have already adopted auto-enrolment, but this year is when smaller companies and individual employers need to start taking the changes on board. And it doesn't just affect nannies, but potentially cleaners and gardeners, um, if you pay them more than a certain sum every year. So are parents likely to suck it up, or will it be widely ignored, or worse, simply provide a boost to the cash-in-hand economy? Sean McSweeney, a pensions expert with Advisors Chase Devere, joins me. Sean, thank you very much for coming in. Who is it that needs to take notice of of this new campaign from the government on auto-enrolment?
2: Effectively, James, anyone that employs anyone. Right. So anyone
0: that employs anyone, that could be...
2: Could be a nanny, could be a cleaner, it could be... Anyone who is not carrying on that job is part of their own business. But if,
0: but if I employ, as I, you know, the plumber comes in tomorrow to fix my sink, I don't have to provide an That's absolutely so no what's problem. The, what's the cut off point?
2: The key is how someone's paid and how they're delivering that service. So, for instance, if you have a nanny who's employed through an agency and you pay that agency, it's likely you don't have an issue. However, if you pay employ that nanny directly, you pay them, you deduct tax and national insurance, it's likely they may be covered. Mm.
0: And is there a particular limit of salary where you have to worry about this? The
2: limit's absolutely set by the government each year. It's currently £10,000 per annum, but one area that people don't understand, that's not an annual figure. It's a proportionate figure each time you pay them. So if you pay your money monthly, then it's the proportion of £10,000 in that month that's the trigger point for
0: auto-enrolling them. I see. And is there an easy way for people to find out whether they do you know, require to do this? So is there a, a website or some sort of way of, of, of finding out?
2: There is an auto-enrolment policeman, and they're known as the mm-hmm. pension regulator. Mm-hmm. Now, the pension regulator shares data with the tax authorities, so they have a list of every employer in the UK who currently runs a pay-as-you-earn scheme. They have a great website. All you need to know is your P-A-Y-E reference, which you may get from your accountant or whoever runs your payroll. You can pop that into the regulator's website and it will tell you if you're registered and if so, when you'll have to start making these putting people into as your an pension an employer, scheme, as an employer yeah
0: and you know if your nanny or your gardener or your butler uh, turns around and says well actually i don't want a pension I'm, I'm quite happy as i am do you still nonetheless have to enroll them
2: the government is absolutely determined that every employee in the uk who earns over a certain amount will save for retirement it's the job of the employer not to speak to their people it's the job of the employer to put them in a pension scheme if they meet the right criteria but they
0: can opt out
2: Afterwards, they can opt out. Interestingly, one area where larger employers have been caught out is the employer can't process that opt out. The pension scheme can opt out. So the employer has no involvement other than putting that individual into a pension scheme. Mm -hmm. But the employee can choose to opt out with the scheme provider.
0: Is it easy to set up?
2: The government would say yes. (laughs) The difficulty is pensions are complex. They've traditionally been an area where large employers have got involved and they are quite complex. There is a basic pension scheme provided by the government. It's known as NEST, the National Employment Savings Trust, and an employer can go to NEST. NEST have to accept them, but they have to understand their duties first. No one's probably going to handhold them through it.
0: And what sort of rate, if if I'm um, putting my Money into a pension what sort of rate do i have to contribute as an employer
2: the current rate for auto enrolment is eight percent of someone's earnings now it can vary how that earnings are calculated but generally the earnings on which an employee will pay national insurance so roughly between just under six thousand pounds per annum up to forty one thousand pounds per annum and the, the total rate that must be paid is 8% of those earnings, known as qualifying earnings. Of that 8%, the employer must pay a minimum of three. A generous employer may choose to pay it all, or they could mandate that the employee pays 5% of that contribution. I see.
0: And just to, to be clear, what are the penalties potentially of not doing anything?
2: Well, firstly, I think it's really important for anybody, any employer, to know that the pensions regulator has a list of the 1.8 million employers in the UK that have to meet these duties between now and 2018. They have that list, and there is a requirement up five months after the date that an employer must put, these, put their auto-enrolment scheme in place to tell the regulator how you've met your duties. If you don't, they'll firstly call you, And then they have a range of sanctions that they can then bring in after that. The initial one, is they'll tell you, you have to do something by a specific date. If you choose not to, the first stage will be a fine. Mm -hmm. Now, that currently sits at £400 as a fixed fine, very similar to the £100 fine for not doing your tax return. And it's very difficult to get that back. For employers who choose then to completely ignore the duties going forward, there are what's known as escalating fines, and those can be as high as £2,500 per day. So it's important for employers not to fall into that trap. Plan early and make sure they do what they have to do.
0: Do you think this, I mean, obviously no-one wants a fine, but do you think, therefore, that it might well push people into the grey economy, the, the cash-in-hand economy, uh, so they can get out of all this altogether?
2: Well, that's a possibility, but there are some pretty strong... There is some pretty strong legislation designed to cope with that. It's got the very difficult term of of something called prohibitive recruitment. But what that means is that an employer who encourages or speaks about opting out of the pension scheme or, or chooses not to put it in place, it can actually be a criminal sanction. The maximum sanction for that is up to two years' imprisonment.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Sean. There's more in this weekend's FT Money on what to do about the auto-enrolment issue, as well as news on a government climb down on Britain's non-DOMs and how celebrity chef Richard Corrigan manages his money. Um, You can read online at ft.com slash money or on tablets using the new FT web app. Follow at FT Money on Twitter to be alerted to breaking news and the latest from our columnists. The engine of the global economy over the past decade is showing signs of stuttering. China this week reported GDP figures of 6.9% in the three months to September, following a tumultuous summer on its stock markets. For a Western economy, 6.9% sounds fantastic. But for the Asian giant, it was the worst quarterly GDP performance since the financial crisis. UK investors in the funds industry have found lots of ways of tapping into the Chinese growth story in recent years. The question is, should they now think better of it? Well, There may be many reasons for sticking with China. The figures also show that its services sector remains strong as Chinese people get a taste for things that would previously have been considered unaffordable luxuries like tourism, good retail and cinema. Evidence suggests that China's consumers' appetite for spending is undiminished. But is there a way for UK investors to target this sort of activity and strip out the heavy industrial businesses and infrastructure that have driven much growth up to now? Naomi Rovnik has been looking at the China services sector for FT money. Naomi, services look like a bright spot. Is there any way we in the UK can invest in it?
3: As always with China, extremely hard place to invest, not only because standards of corporate governance and accounting are very weak, but also because it's very hard to identify individual companies that have the kind of track record of profitability that we as, you know, perhaps private investors would look for. I mean, it's one thing to invest in an AIM company in the UK when you can maybe even visit their offices if if you want to. Perhaps small company CEOs mm-hmm. in the UK would be really happy to host a few private investors for the day. It's a long way to China, and you don't speak the language. And we have had many cases of Chinese companies that listed their shares overseas, in fact, not having the assets that were on their balance sheet, because it was very hard for people to check.
0: Yeah, it seems like a sensible health warning. But if it's hard to, dire- to invest directly, is, is there a possible... Weigh in by investing in proxies or things that track Chinese consumer spending indirectly.
3: I, as somebody who who lived in and around China for eight years, definitely prefer proxies. I mean, the Chinese consumer story is a very good one. Um, Chinese have traditionally been savers, but as the government tries to rebalance the economy away from their own investing in infrastructure to domestic spending, you know, a bit more more like our economy or the U.S. economy, people are being told. It's okay to spend a Friday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon going out and having fun, enjoy some leisure time. And of course, people are getting a bit richer. And actually, the labour market, as economists would say, it's quite tight. You know, there's not a lot of what they would call spare capacity. There's more than one job for every one applicant in China. So all these things are very good. How do we take advantage of that is the next question, of course. I was um, with two Chinese friends having coffee last week and they were moaning about the fact that whenever they come to London, their relatives ask them to get them toilet seats. Toilet seats, for some reason, is something that the Chinese love to buy abroad. Nappies, vitamins, anything that isn't made at home because Chinese-made goods have a lot of trust and quality issues, even with their own consumers. So what fund managers are looking for are... Countries and companies that are benefiting from Chinese spending, a lot of which could be happening overseas. There's one Japanese company I talk about in my article, Cow Corporation, that um, that makes nappies, and the Chinese simply love their brand of nappies. So that stock is on about 32 times earnings. So you probably should have got in a while back, but um, that's an example of a proxy.
0: Okay, and if I wanted to uh, keep my money in a managed fund, are there any in the UK that that might... uh get involved in this sort of activity?
3: There are a few. I mean, I generally would caution away from China-only funds because the sentiment of investors towards China is still quite poor. I mean, most people will think about the lowest growth since um, mm. since 2009. And the manager of a China fund is stuck in Chinese companies whether he likes it or not. Some are great, most are quite untested. So one sensible thing could be to look for Asia-focused funds that are focused on acting some of the spending of the Chinese consumer. So one stock that a lot of managers like is Taiwan Semiconductor. This is an Apple supplier. They make smartphones. Taiwan's near to China. The um, the language is the same, but it's crucially not mainland China. And TSMC is powering the smartphone boom in China because of its mm. chips. So any fund that owns shares that you think are exposed to China but aren't um, perhaps Chinese. And with a fund manager, you've got that added comfort of the fact that they've met the management, they've been to the factories, they've done the due diligence that you as a private investor don't have to do.
0: On the contrary, exchange-traded funds, where uh, it's much more mechanistic, are they involved? Uh, Can can they act as a a proxy almost for this sort of activity?
3: I had a look and I didn't discover very many. There's one New York Stock Exchange listed one, CHIQ is the ticker. Um, it's called the China Consumer ETF. That tracks a basket of stocks that benefit from the China consumer directly or indirectly. That's one option. You'd have to talk to your broker. I think there should be more.
0: What are the risks of all this um, if, I, if I put too much of my money into into this sort of thing?
3: Well, I think China, as with any emerging markets should be in the high risk portion of your portfolio again it's it's a market that you don't really know about yourself unless you've lived in China or you currently live in China you're in some cases relying on fund managers to do the homework for you that's great but um, paying quite high fees so you have to be really cognizant of are the returns I'm expecting justified? And the other thing is sentiment. I mean, even though we can see from the GDP data that China's services sector, which comprises all these businesses like hotels, retailers, that are doing well out of rising consumer spending, we can see that in the data, but often market sentiment isn't logical, doesn't match the data. Um, the sentiment towards China right now is, is pretty bad. Um, so even though logically the services sector is doing well, you need to wait for Mr. Market to start agreeing with you. And it's very hard as a private investor to time that kind of thing.
0: Thank you very much, Naomi. Um, you can read the full story on China's services uh, in this weekend's FT Money. If you liked the FT Money Show, check out the weekly podcast by our colleagues in the FT banking team. You can find it at ft.com slash podcasts every Tuesday. The Money Show will be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Judith, Naomi and Sean McSweeney of Chase Devere. Goodbye.
3: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.